everybody. You're listening to The Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 427, Finding Your Game Face with Dan Abrahams. Frank, joined as always with Eddie. Eddie, how's it going? Going pretty well. I will say I've slightly lost my voice. Like I probably sound a little bit croaky. Slightly lost my voice over the course of the last couple of days. More croaky than interesting. normal. Yeah, <laughs> which is going to be interesting for listeners because obviously on the back end of this is our interview. So they're going to hear two very different sounding voices once we switch over to the interview that we have, which... I guess it's worth saying, as usual, if you only come for the interview, then, you know, around sort of 30 minutes from now, you can skip ahead and find that. But it was, you know, we had the pleasure of speaking with Dan Abrahams, who's a leading sports uh, psychologist who's worked with England rugby, a number of different Premier League championship football clubs. And apparently several high profile European football players that he does not mention by name, but gives several clues that might help you identify who it is or who yeah, they are and that's a good that's a good opportunity too to say look if you aren't already please follow us on twitter search for the big chill pod instagram the big chill podcast youtube and if you want listen to the back end of the episode and you can you know maybe tweet at us mention us in something and, and put in your guesses as to who you think he is referring to obviously with the respect of you know patient uh, therapist confidentiality and, and all of that so we're not trying to trying to expose anyone but but yeah no a great interview some really interesting insights and I think I always like it when we talk to people where there's things that you can take away from that as a non-professional athlete and apply to the way you play sports or I think almost the way you just go about your daily life so yeah. it's great to, to have that chance yeah just I mean just a little teaser after speaking with Dan I I'm now taking this podcast in as relentless and dominant. So you might see a change in the tone of my podcasting. It's because I'm now relentless and dominant in my podcasting abilities. Who's your spirit animal or the animal that kind of embodies the the mindset that you'd like to have? I'm like an otter, just constantly swimming, playing in the water nonstop, eats over his body weight. (laughs) Interesting choice. I wasn't expecting that one. Well, it's just because I went to the Atlanta Aquarium and I sat and watched the otter just swim around this enclosure for like 15 minutes. Okay. <laughs> All right. They're well, how awesome. Was the, how, was, how was the trip? Oh, Atlanta was fun. First time I've ever been there as an adult. Um, I went for a track meet once, but that was a long time ago. It's, it's a fun city. Uh, it was like the perfect time, perfect weather. I did a little bit of a brewery tour a single brewery tour by myself, but it was fun. I got to use the electric scooter to go from brewery to brewery, which was really fun. Always dangerous. I don't know how people can ride those on a consistent basis. I feel like one slip, you fall into the street and you're going to be run over. But the sad yeah, part, I feel, for... <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> I feel uncomfortable on them. I'm, I mean, I don't, I don't use them heavily. They're obviously very popular here. When we went in the summer, when I went to Bordeaux, as on the bachelor party as a group we all got them to go around bordeaux and i have to admit it was you know it gets enjoyable but balancing 
the level of concern I have on them. I think it outweighs any pleasure that I'm getting out of it. Like I'd much rather just be on a bike if that's the, if that's yeah. the option. It's so where I was kind of in a, not a suburb, but just kind of like a little neighborhoodish area of Atlanta. So there wasn't as much traffic. So it wasn't bad in that sense. Like I wasn't scared that I was going to get clipped or hit, but just even going over some big bumps and stuff, you know, you just lose control of it and you're going to fall. I, I mean, I've seen in Tucson, they're pretty big too. And I've seen on Friday nights, drunk people ride them from bar to bar. And I've seen people just face plant it off of them. And it, it does not look good, but I, I didn't get any injuries, but I did lose some money on the scooter because I had, uh, I was going from brewery to brewery and I was getting like a beer to bring home for like back to Tucson from each brewery. So I had a little paper bag that had about at the time three crowler size or just the tall can size of beers, but they were cold. And I hadn't realized that the, the, the dew from the can was breaking the integrity of the paper bag. The dew. The do was there a micro? Was there like a small ecosystem starting to yes. create itself? Yes, okay. the water evaporation, um, the condensation, and I guess the bag ripped mid bump on the scooter, and all three of the crawlers fell out, and all three fell right onto the concrete, and tss, and I just had three wasted cans of beer, and there was a point where I contemplated at least one of them just cracking it open, chugging it. But it's like an 8% IPA. And I was like, I can't do this. I just can't. Yeah, you just got to take take the loss on that one. So I just tossed them in the trash. Very unfortunate. (laughs) But traveling back, Eddie, I did have a slight, I didn't have an incident, but a little encounter that made me think think of if this is what should be done in public. So I'll, I get to the airport and I'm in the the men's bathroom in the urinals and there's several urinals and someone pulls up next to me and starts to starts to pee in the urinal and then re- <laughs> let let rips a pretty loud fart and then looks at me and goes, excuse me. <laughs> so it got me to thinking. <laughs> Is a fart an excuse me situation like a burp? <laughs> um, wow, I'm I'm I am sure that uh, Dan is delighted that this is the conversation that's going to lead into the interview with him. Um, for new listeners, this is not we don't often talk about bodily functions. Um, hey, it's a valid question. <laughs> I'm I will say in general, I am surprised by how many people when they are at the urinal actually do think it's that's just a a fine moment to just let rip consistently i'll be at a urinal and you'll just hear someone going at it and sometimes repeatedly just kind of like really getting everything out of their body and then it always blows me away and i guess it kind of makes sense you're contained within the bathroom like if you're going to do it anywhere i guess it's the most and i wouldn't find it so what if you were in a stall that to me is the thing is if i if I really needed to go, to, I would just go in the stall and do it. And then people would just assume that you were, you know, not just peeing. That would be my move. <laughs> this doctor's getting better. I hope Dan, yeah. Dan is really pleased now. But I mean, as you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I'm a fan of sitting down when you pee anyway. Although rarely in public bathrooms, but I'm a. <laughs> I know you're, you're like uh, Larry David. 
I'm repeatedly on record. It's it's the way to go. If you're not doing it, you can you're, later on you're going to be able to take some interesting, particularly if you're a golfer, some interesting psychological <laughs> tips away. But before you do that, try sitting down when you pee. It's a game changer. <laughs> so, but getting back to it, is is the passing of gas an excuse, an excuse me situation? Me? I mean, I think I think in other circumstances, yes. Like you, you kind of have to acknowledge it, right? Uh, it's not a situation I often find myself in, but I think, but given the context that you're in the bathroom stall, I think, I don't know, part of me likes it. It, it comes across as, it's this weird balance of the initial thing being very impolite, but then you're kind of trying to salvage it with a polite move. <laughs> I Yeah, I, I guess what bothers me, it wasn't as if it was like an oopsie moment and it just kind of popped out of him. <laughs> was, like, he, he, was he drunk? This, this was, a, uh, this was a, a let loose kind of situation. Was he drunk? I, I couldn't tell if he was or not. I mean, because that's that's the kind of thing you could imagine happening, like a drunken guy in a bar, and then you're there, and then he kind of just does it, and then goes, oh, "Excuse me," yeah, oh, you know that <laughs> I could I could see that playing out. But yeah, as a sober person, it does seem strange. I, I don't know how we're gonna now bring this back into the world of sports. This is gonna be one of our tougher transitions to pull off. Uh, how about this? Speaking of people who probably have their own private urinals. Forbes just released the top 10 oh, highest nice. paid athletes of the past year. Yeah. And and now, we've already, we've, we've to give a little inside baseball move for the listeners, we've already discussed this. I have not seen this list. I wasn't aware that it had been released. So this is coming at, I'm coming into this completely blind. And this is something we've discussed in the previous years that they've released it. So this is, this is a common topic yeah. for us. So do I need to... And and this is this this is factoring in all of their earnings, right? It's not just their salaries or prize. This is on earnings. and off the field earnings. Yes, correct. Okay, so I am I I'm I'm going for number one, or am I just trying to fill out the top ten? What would you like to do? I'll fill out the top ten. I think because okay. I'm I'll go LeBron James. Yes, LeBron James is number two. Okay. So total um, earnings of 120 million, on field 40, or I guess on court 40, cool. and off court 80 million. So he had the most endorsement money, almost second most out of the top 10. Uh, Lewis Hamilton. Nope, not on the top 10. Wow, bad year for Lewis. And I'll give you the uh, neither is uh, Max. Oh, I mean, if, the, if it was going to be a Formula One. Although I know I, I recently read an article where they were projecting that Max Verstappen is going to become a billionaire. But anyway. Not according um, to Forbes. No. Not yeah, last not, year. <laughs> no. Um, okay. Uh, Neymar, consistently in the top 10. Yep. Neymar, number four. 70 on the, on the pitch, 25 off. Ronaldo. Ronaldo, number three on this year's list. 115 total, 60 on, 55 off. Messi. Lionel Messi, number one, 130 million, 75 million on the pitch, 55 million off. And that's even better, right? Because that's net for him because he doesn't pay taxes. So sweet year for <laughs> Messi. <laughs> well, um, I, is it though? Because at the same time, I don't think Barcelona actually pays him. <laughs> so he's not even getting the on the pitch money. <laughs> well, he, he plays for PSG. So it'd be weird if Barcelona were still paying him, Frank. <laughs> but I'm sure they probably are still somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Um, from the past. 
it gets a little trickier now. I, I think I've kind of I threw those were all the the ones I expected to factor, and now we get into. Yep. So you've gotten one, two, ones. three, and four. Got the top four. And because now we start to balance, you're starting to think about people who are going to have huge off the field earnings, like. Like Roger Federer, I'm going to put in there, even though his prize winnings over the past year will be minimal. So are you are you guessing that yeah, one? I mean, are you? This is that's about to be edited out, but there was just a long period of silence where you just <laughs> stared at me. What? Well, yes, I guessed Roger Federer. <laughs> no, Roger Federer is number seven. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, Ninety million Serena. off and and point seven on. <laughs> uh, Serena Williams. Serena's not in the top ten. No female athletes are in the top ten. I mean, yeah, if it wasn't going to be Serena, it's going to be no one. Um, okay. Tyson Fury. Tyson Fury not in the top ten. There is one boxing individual in the top ten. Boxing or combat sports? Boxing. Canelo Alvarez. Yeah, good guess. Wow. Very nice. 85 on, 5 million off. Um, so how many do I have? I've got four left. Is that right? Yes. Hmm. So while you're Novak thinking Djokovic. there's... Novak, Novak Djokovic. Djokovic. No. I was going to say, while you're thinking there's only one athlete under 30 on this list, and you have not guessed him yet. Okay. So I'm going to go... And there is only one athlete over 40 on this list, and you have not guessed All him right, yet. So Tom Brady. Tom Brady, yes, 83.9 million. Although Roger Federer is technically 40, so he's the only one over 40. <laughs> okay. Um, breaking the rules that you randomly just created for yourself. <laughs> I knew I was going to get some heat for someone who said, particularly you, that Roger Federer is 40. <laughs> um, okay, so I've got three left. I'm trying to think of which sports. I'm going to guess there's another football player. NFL player. Is there another NFL player on the list? There is not. Is there another NBA player on the list? Yes. Oh, uh, Steph Curry. Steph Curry, number five this year. Very even. 45 million on, 47 off. Okay, to speed things up, could you? I got what, two left? Two left. Six and Could you just give me the, the sports that they play? Both play basketball. Oh shit! Um, one is under thirty years old. Uh, one is known for his off the field uh, finances in his, in like what he invests in and things like that. I don't know if that clue helps me. Um, under thirty. NBA Not the player. under thirty one. The over thirty one yeah, is known yeah. for his investments. When I think of the NBA player who's most known, well, uh, I'll go Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant, yep. Yeah. yeah, so he had he has deals with Coinbase, Top Shot, Weed Maps, Boardroom, Thirty Five Ventures is his investment firm. So he does a lot uh, off the off the court. And then we got an under thirty, Luka Doncic. Nope. Um, think of our friend Vasilis. <laughs> oh, Giannis. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Good for him. Yep, Giannis I mean, made 80.9 80, 80. million last year. And 80.9 million in Wisconsin. That's, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that is, that is an astronomical sum of money to live in Milwaukee. 
I would just, yeah, I mean, that's, no, I, you know, as an athlete, you, you do have to factor that in. Like that's, you know, it's like when athletes move to say Florida, Florida or Texas because no of the lack of, yeah, the lack of state ta- income tax. But I mean, sometimes you got to be like, cool, you can move to Miami, but it's still going to be super expensive versus playing, say, for Green Bay, where you'll pay the tax, but the cost of living, you're probably netting more by living in a less expensive place. But is it worth it when you have $81 million to live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin versus living in somewhere nice and sunny like Miami or Phoenix? (laughs) Six months of the year, he can live wherever he wants to live. That's the amazing thing about being an NBA player is their season is so, you know, like you're talking about he needs to be in Wisconsin from middle of September till middle of June, you know, and that's if they make the, you know, reach the finals and that might, he might not even be turning up that early. It must be later than that even. So let's say October, beginning of October to beginning of June on average for him, that's, it's a nice time to go to Athens or LA or wherever it is he spends the rest of his time. Probably as he's an NBA player, probably LA. It seems like they all go there. Yeah. And this is a, a slight drop off in the average of the 10 highest paid from last year. But a lot of that was due to the previous number one, which do you remember who that was? Last year? Uh, Connor McGregor. Yeah, Connor McGregor, because he had sold his his whiskey company so he had a very large uh number one uh salary number but 130 million to 81 million rounds out the top 10 not too bad i I take it i'll take 11th (laughs) when you hear that though does that sound high to you or does that sound kind of low to you both as silly as it's like stupid as that sounds because it's no sounds, it's, it's exactly the same thing i thought when i hear it because <laughs> like initially it sounds kind of low but at the same time when i really think what it means to be earning a, 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 you know around a hundred million a year is you know huge and that does mean that you could become a billionaire in what say like 15 to 20 years of earning that amount factory and taxes and other things. So yeah, it's, it's both. And listen, to defend my messy stance, he was at Barcelona in 2021, correct? <laughs> Didn't he move in all, uh, like in like the summer? Last summer. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, this is 2021. So he didn't get paid yeah. for the first half of the year. <laughs> No, and transitioning from one player who will probably never feature on that list again. Last week, I mentioned we spoke about tennis, a topic we do not dedicate that much time to. But it's getting a little bit sad in the world of Rafael Nadal. He lost yesterday to Shepovalov, a player whose last name I always struggle with. And his Just say the Canadian with the long blonde hair. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. His foot injury seems to be pretty... I mean, he's referred to it as a chronic foot injury. He said that there's nothing he, they can do to deal with it, that he's just accepted that it's his lot in life to have a very painful foot yeah, after I, he has it. Did you see his one comment was like, if you think if you think this is uncommon, you should see me at home every day. It's way worse. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean, it, it's just difficult. I remember last week, obviously, we spoke, you know, we were speaking about the rise of Carlos Alcaraz as the, you know, the heir to the throne of 
Spanish tennis and, and maybe global tennis. And, and I said I still would back Rafael Nadal to win the French Open. I have to retract that. It is difficult to imagine him making it through. I mean, I don't think he'll withdraw from the tournament just because I don't think that's within his mindset. But it's it's difficult to imagine that in you know three set matches, even if he's winning comfortably, to do that every forty eight hours over the course of two weeks, I don't think his body can withstand that. And when he gets to the latter stages and he's put under pressure by, you know, any of the top players, I can't see him winning. So he's going to have to be near, near on perfect. And I, I just, it's hard to imagine. Yeah. So I'm, you have been quoted on previous episodes of saying that it's, Nadal in the French Open is is the easiest way you can make money. But just to go back to the futures right now, the Antipost, um, Nadal has now slipped into joint second favorite with uh, Djokovic at nine to four, and Carlos uh, Alcaraz is now the favorite at seven to four. So I, I honestly, if if I were to believe what you're saying, and I actually do, because he does look absolutely miserable right now. I cannot see Nadal lasting a major championship with the three sets. If that's no. the case, then I think at seven to four, Alcaraz is, is actually a pretty good bet. I mean, I think the main concern there is that he's so young. Can he handle? Can he handle it? Yeah, I mean, I do think there's an element of disrespect when it comes to Novak Djokovic. <laughs> you know, you are talking about a player who's previously, you know, won the French Open uh, last year and. He's playing pretty well on clay so far this season. He struggled for a little bit post-Australian Open and that whole fiasco. His form at first wasn't great, but he seems to be finding his feet. No reference, obviously, to the Nadal situation. But he, you know, he's doing well this week. He did pretty well last week. I think Djokovic should be favorite. Like, I think if I were Djokovic, and he does seem like the type of person who would be fueled by something like that, I, I would be mildly insulted by the fact that this young player who's who's won pretty much nothing is somehow more likely to win. And again, I doubt he's che- I doubt I doubt Novak Djokovic is on odds checker. <laughs> kind of refreshing to see what his, his price is. But I feel like all athletes check a little. Specifically, the odds maybe not, but I definitely he'll know that people are what people are writing and that people are talking about Alcaraz. I mean, Alcaraz himself has called him last week called him referred to himself as being the favorite for the French Open and Love he it. is anointing himself. Love you know, it. So So yeah. here's my question though. So I guess a lot of the hype for Alcaraz going going into the French Open is that he did just recently beat Nadal. But does that look as significant when you now see that Nadal can barely walk to get a water in between sets? I think that's a good point. I, mean, I do think that it's a good point. I mean, just look, no one's suddenly going in heavily on Shapovalov to win the French Open, and he just beat Nadal. So in you know very similar circumstances, three-setter, you know, quite similar scoreline, really. I, I mean, Alcaraz is a very good player, and it's a matter of time until he wins the French Open, that's for sure. But, and it may well be this year. But I just think in in Djokovic you have, uh, yeah, and again the thing that Djokovic has going for him 
similar to Nadal, which I think when you get into five set, best of five, uh, you know, matches is so important. They're never beaten. You really know that with them. You can have them down two sets and five love, and they're still going to try. There's not, and that's not true of every tennis player. And so I think, again, you know that Djokovic will grind it out in the ugliest way necessary if he has to. Shapovalov, 66 to 1, for those who are intrigued. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, good luck with that. Hey, just beat Nadal. It's- yeah, exactly. But hey, speaking of stars making their return, Stradivarius today. They, All over the board know, now. Now we're yeah, no, horse we're racing. <laughs> yeah. Just, I mean, just, you know, it's worth mentioning. It's, it's, and we spoke again on a recent episode about the need for horse racing to have superstars. There can be no doubt that Stradivarius is a superstar, and it's, it's wonderful that they've kept him going. And that you still have him. Okay, we know it's going to be the final season. Yes, he won today. I, th- I think it was a, it was more workmanlike than Stradivarius of the past. You can definitely tell the fifth gear probably isn't there anymore. But fourth gear might beat a lot of horses, so it might still be good enough. Because you know the question in Stradivarius has always been, who is he beating? But a lot of the times, just the opposition has not been great. And that has been part of the success story. Maybe fourth gear Stradivarius will still be good enough to beat, you know, the opposition he'll be up against in most races this season. Unless they send him to the arc again. Yeah. He actually reminds me a little bit of Nadal. (laughs) Where where he just doesn't have that last gear, but he's still giving it his all. yeah, it's it wasn't the best win, but uh, another. I was I think that was a group two. I don't think that was a group one, but another group race win for Stradivarius. So it was, and it wasn't his true distance. It was a little shorter than his. I think his money distance of that two mile, two 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 mile two. I think won the race more comfortably than the finishing distance would end up. It it was very clear from a furlong out that he'd won the race. Um, but you know, I don't, and I, I, mean, I don't I guess, think he'll, he'll do the clean sweep. That would yeah. surprise me. Well, I was going to say his, you know, the, the big race will be the Ascot gold cup. Uh, he is currently third favorite for that. So even with that win, it's, he's still not back to the favorite that two years ago, you'd be lucky if you can get him odds on Wait, Odds against odds against, sorry. Oh, I'm so lucky I've got him at 1 to 10. <laughs> Been trying to get some tickets to the Champions League final. The prices too are cheap. out of... Oh, out of this world. Out of this world. I, I have what's, what's be, out I of this been, world? Okay, I've been offered uh, two different sets of tickets at this point. Wait, wait, before, before you do get, this real quick. Um, how are they doing this? Because it originally wasn't supposed to be in Paris. So, um, so the, there's a lottery, I think, for Liverpool and Real Madrid supporters where they're okay. able to go into a lottery. So like for the two teams involved in the final, they have a lottery to try and get tickets. And that makes and up then, like 50% of the stadium? or I don't know. Okay. I don't even know. But then 
pre a ton of tickets were already available on the market and been had been bought. So I've been offered, as I said, so two two pairs of tickets. One category one, so quite decent, not amazing, but like pretty good tickets. Oh, what's better Another than category, category one? <laughs> Zero. Well, there isn't. <laughs> well, I mean, in the sense of like within category one, there's still a range, right? Because you okay. can have category one right on the halfway line, you know, seven rows up, eight rows up, and be perfect. Or you can have category one still sort of more on one side and stuff. And then category three, right at the top of the stadium, where your head would basically touch the roof if you stood up. Amazingly, the category one offer I got was less expensive than the category three. What? How much? Yeah. How much do you think the category three tickets were offered to me for? For the pair. Do it individually. Okay. Because I, I I was given uh, a per ticket price. So. Twenty five hundred a ticket. Too low. And we're talking euros here. Yeah. Just to clarify. Five thousand euros a ticket. Too high. So thirty thirty <laughs> thirty four hundred euros a ticket. Wow. For literally, I would think pretty Wait, much the worst. Then what are the category ones? I was offered those for twenty eight hundred euros. Face value six six fifty. I think you could take that and still turn a profit on it come day of. Probably, but I feel like a scumbag. <laughs> well, don't you gotta make him feel like a scumbag anyway for giving him for you? What is that? Four times higher? Five times higher? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think that's a scumbag move too. But I I don't want to participate in that. Now now let no, me ask I... you this: Is the offers you had on these? Were they people who got them and genuinely wanted to go or got them purely for the financial aspect of it and want to turn a profit? So one of them probably wanted to go and for whatever reason isn't, most likely because they think they can make, they've done the calculation in their head and decided I'd rather have 7,000 euros over attending the match. The other one, he does this consistently. He's just, he's, he's and he, I think he has... 10 tickets. He's just wanting to sell them. I like that. No guy. interest in attending. <laughs> that guy's got the right idea. And he said, this is the most in demand ticket he's ever seen for any sporting event that he's ever had tickets for. And this is someone who's had tickets for multiple champions league finals, FA cup, world cup finals, euros finals, um, you know, like everything. And this is, he said, this is the hottest ticket he's ever had. Wow, that's crazy. I mean, I can see it because, I mean, not only is it unexpected, so I think just the fact that it wasn't supposed to be and now it is kind of piques the interest a little more, but then also you have two good teams, right? So I think that is definitely going to drive a little more. And you have teams with fans that could very likely travel to see it. Yeah, no, and and, spe- and then keeping not hopping on to a, a new sport this time, but obviously, again, on a recent episode, we talked about the likelihood that the Erling Holland deal to City would be completed probably by the time we were next recording, and that is Bingo. indeed the case. <laughs> yeah, it looks like it's all, you know, it's all been done. So, yeah, Erling Holland will be signing for City this summer in, you know, uh, it feels like just you have to pencil city in now for the premier league for the next four or five seasons really 
Well, I mean, that was going to be my main question to you is, will he be a good fit in the system? And in, and in, in city system, and then also in playing in the premier league in general. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. He's, he's kind of perfectly suited to it, right? He's six foot four. He's incredibly strong, incredibly quick. He, it will be a change in, in style of play for him just because of the difference in the way that Dortmund play versus how City play. And just the, the you know, he'll have to prove himself a little bit in accepting more of a role where um, you're not just able to get into space behind teams as maybe easily as he does at the moment a lot because you'll just have teams sitting back. But yeah, I think there's no question marks. The only issue I think is can he keep fit? He's a player who misses a lot of games. And to a certain extent, City will be able to manage that. He won't need to play every week. You know, there's no reason why he has to play 38 Premier League matches. But obviously, if he's injured in March, April, May for them, then, you know, that's when he's going to need to justify the move. Because to it doesn't change. The difficult thing, right, is, is they have so many, they've been getting so many points. How much of a difference? You know, they're on 89 points. They're probably going to finish on. 95 points he, it's not like they're going to sign holland and so what they've dropped points so far in eight matches it, it's not like they're going to sign holland and all of a sudden have 110 points like that's not going to happen so they're probably going to end up on a similar points total at the end of the season and you know they're going to be assholes who then look at that and do that well did they really need to sign him kind of calculation but <laughs> they're signing him to win the champions league i mean that's the reason behind it fundamentally and he definitely makes them their favorites for sure going into it next season. And has anything been released from a financial standpoint? I mean, it's all speculation, right? As to yeah. how much he's earning. He's not he's not breaking any records. I think he's breaking records for someone of his age, okay. but he's not breaking records in terms of the Premier League itself or world football. Do you but think we'll see him on Forbes's list next year? Probably not next year, but at some point, you know. But yeah, anything we've. Hopped around. We hopped around a lot in, in sports last week, and I mean, we should around a bit. Now. We got to at least hop into the NFL because another topic that we've discussed in the previous year, that or again around the same times as Forbes, because they both come out, is the NFL released the schedules and all their teams released the schedules, and now the, I guess, tradition amongst the teams is to release their own schedule in a unique video format on Twitter. And I spent this morning watching every single one of them from every team because that's I've seen none of them. Because you know why? Because I'm dominant and relentless, Eddie, and that's the type of podcaster I am. So I watched all of them to tell our listeners what are the ones that they should actually take the two to three minutes and watch. And the answer is well, how? Hold on. How about we make it simple? If you want to see them, we'll, we'll make it even easier for us. Frank, you'll give us the list, but we will just retweet them all from our own Twitter account. So then you can just go and find Perfect. the Big Chill Podcast. You can follow us there and you'll, you won't, we'll save you the typing. You only have to search for one thing and you'll get it all. Perfect. Screw it. I don't want to talk about it now. That's too good. Well, and we could skip it now <laughs> if they want to see it. They have to go there. Well, I will just say the two best ones, in my opinion, were dominated by the people you most expected it to be the Manning brothers. So the Giants one I thought was really good. Eli was pretty funny. And uh, the Denver Broncos one, they had a really good idea of uh, Peyton being the cow uh, Cowboys, Jesus Christ, the Denver Broncos intern. And he was training the new intern that was Russell Wilson. 
So yeah. that was actually a pretty good idea. The best part about it was Russell Russell Wilson trying to learn or like learn teach himself how to do the Omaha and the 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 the, uh, the, the knee kick it was pretty funny. <laughs> the way he was saying it was pretty good. Well, yeah, maybe as a final topic because we're obviously running pretty long here and we've got the interview coming in a, in a matter of moments. Speaking of both the Forbes list, Rich list, and the NFL, you had the story this week of Tom Brady seemingly agree to becoming an announcer on Fox uh, when you, you're giving me a blank stare. Did you not see any of this news? No, I didn't see this. Oh, really? <laughs> How have you not seen this? It's been. I mean, the so... only Tom Brady updates I have tagged that come to me are if there are anything with like him, like in a, in a with shirtless or anything like that. So, so basically, during uh, their Fox's, I think it was their earnings report meeting, their annual meeting, um, one of the Murdochs, can't remember which one it is, revealed that they were going to be signing Tom Brady to a 10-year, $375 million deal to become the one of the announcers on, or commentators, if you're not American, on fox sports whenever he retires since this is this was then leaked so someone who was on that call went and told a reporter and then it came out since it has come out fox has kind of denied it but they won't say which element they're denying so they came out and said (laughs) their statement i I don't have the i don't have the exact statement but basically their statement was the reports is not entirely true although we will not say which elements are not true. So it could be the amount. It could be that the deal is done. It would be mind-blowing to me if one of the Murdochs was getting, was like, you know, jumping the gun on this kind of deal. It's such a weird arrangement for me that he's not retired, but you've already got this deal in place. I would love to know, is there a certain, has he pre-agreed the year he will be joining? Obviously, Fox has the Super Bowl this year, and then they have the Super Bowl again in three years. So you could think if Tom Brady's going to play two more seasons, he's then going to be, he if he were then joining then, he'd be joining on a season when Fox has the Super Bowl. So you might that might make the most sense if they had picked a year. But Does that mean it's crazy going to be Joe deal. Buck and Tom Brady? No, Joe Buck's gone. Joe Buck's gone? Joe Buck and... Yeah, yeah, Joe Buck and Troy Aikman are gone. They've gone to Amazon. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. That is correct. They've gone to Amazon. Yeah. So at the moment, their team is oh, pretty <laughs> it's not star studded. Yeah. So, so yes, what the the quote is what has been reported isn't an accurate description of the deal, and we have not released details beyond what was disclosed on our quarterly earnings call. So they're not disputing the fact that it has happened. They're just disputing maybe some of the numbers aren't fully correct. Yeah. <laughs> it could be instead of 10 years, 375, it's 10 years, 374. And so they're telling, they're telling us, well, no, actually, it's not, it's not true. Yeah, it's pretty good. I have to say nothing about Tom Brady makes me think he would be a good commentator. Although he's developing more of a personality now, like his social media stuff, he's a little bit more personable. Well, that's what I was alluding to with his the shirt off. I don't know if you had seen that. He posted a picture. Uh, he was filming, I think, in a movie. And he like put up his, in, on his Twitter a picture of him with his shirt off flexing. 
and people are impressed for how in shape he looks for a 44 year old, but he doesn't actually look that in shape. Like I personally know other 44 year olds that are in better shape than he is. And they're not professional athletes that, that have personal trainers and fitness coaches and, and nutritionists. (laughs) He's never looked in that good of shape though. Right. I know. No, I I agree. I agree. But at the same time, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say when I see Tom Brady, I wouldn't say like, man, that guy's in great shape. Never. Like no matter what age he is. I mean, for a 44-year-old, he is in great shape. You might know one or two people who are phys- like sort of aesthetically more But it's more literally pleasing. his job. <laughs> no, that's, that's a different thing. But it, you can't say he's not in great shape. That implies that there's a ton of 44-year-olds out there walking around who are in good enough shape to be a quarterback in the NFL. And I don't think that list is that long. We should test that. And, and again, <laughs> Open also, tryouts right, for over 44-year-olds. But but also what he's calling great shape, too, is different to what someone going to the gym trying to build pointless but aesthetically pleasing muscles might consider to be great shape, if you see what I mean. But I think that's what they were comment, commenting on was the aesthetics of his look with his flexing. What What I really don't understand about it is at the end of the day – who is going to like Fox and be like, oh, I'm going to watch Fox's game because Tom Brady's comment is the commentator. No, you're watching because you I, want I, what game you want to watch. I do think there are weirdos out there though, who might like enough watch a for $37 million a year. No, <laughs> no. But I think there are people out there who, if it's a choice between a Tony Romo game, if they don't have a team, they really, you know, they're going to, their team isn't playing in that time slot. And it's like, oh, I could have Tony Romo doing this or something else. I think they might choose the Romo experience. Maybe. But, and then the other part I really don't get about it, I mean, I know we're kind of running long, is in today's age of how we watch the NFL, I don't understand why commentators are really valued that much at all. Because I would say, a majority of people watching the NFL are doing it one of two ways. Now they're either at a bar where there's seven games on and no sound or two, they're watching red zone and they're just getting clips of things and they're not watching it based off of who's commentating. They're just watching based off what the red zone puts in front of them. I would say now the minority of people are those that say, I'm going to watch Fox's morning and afternoon slate of football games. So I don't really get why the commentator is that highly valued, financially at least, of a, of a job. I think you're probably wrong on that's how most – again, <laughs> I think <laughs> – no, but I mean – I don't think I, think, I am. <laughs> take your dad, for example. Does your dad watch Red Zone? He only watches the Giants, basically. Okay. So <laughs> – but I think I think there's probably a generational gap a little bit in the red zone adoption or, you know, I mean, not not watching a game in a bar. That's not a generational thing. But I do think the red zone adoption is there's a there's a tipping point somewhere. I don't know what the age is, probably mid 30s, maybe 40, where It'd be a, that, this is actually a good stat. We should try and see for next year. What percentage of people watch a single game versus red zone? Yeah. Or just because what's I also the think percentage of people watching football that are watching it through red zone. Because then you also have someone like me who will have a game on plus red zone in my house. And I think there's probably, a, I mean, that's what you do too, right? A lot of the time. So there's probably a lot of people yeah. that are falling into that, the multi screen in one way or another. 
I sometimes have two fixed games on and red zone. So, yeah, well, let's see. We can look into it. Topic for a future episode. But on that note. Let's get Scott Hansen on. Yeah. I wish. He would be a great guest. But on that note, speaking of great guests. We got a better guest. Yeah. We can transition from our weird mix of sports for this week to a, a great conversation with Dan Abrahams on the psychology of athletes and sports. Well, welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. We're now delighted to be joined by this week's guest, Dan Abrahams, a leading sports psychologist who has worked with the likes of the England rugby team, the England golf team, and a number of different professional football teams across the, the different divisions with England. Dan, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Hey, I'm delighted and honored um, to be here. And I'm, I'm, I'm already very impressed that you use the word football rather than soccer. So that's, oh. that's awesome. I love it. Well... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I've, I've got a complicated background, which I guess we won't get into completely necessarily on the podcast right now. But yeah, no, so I've kind of originally English, but then lived, lived in the US as a kid. So. Uh, okay. I was going to say, being a psychologist, being a psychologist, complicated backgrounds are my thing. So don't worry about that. You can be as complicated as you want. <laughs> I don't, yeah. Uh, we'll uh, see you if want I... to sit down on the couch and start, start giving them your story. <laughs> yeah. We're going to can... change the podcast into just diving into Eddie. <laughs> yeah, just, just weekly therapy sessions that we record and release as a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, Dan, thank you so much. And, and obviously, we'll have a number of topics to go over in terms of the teams that you've worked with and just the sort of basics and basis of sports psychology. Mm-hmm. I'd be interested in, in kind of going back to your beginnings and how you got into. Uh, sports psychology. I I saw that you started off as a as a PGA golf coach. Mm. I find that an interesting starting point in the sense that golf seems to be a sport that lends itself very heavily to the the sort of psychology of recovering from mistakes and how do you approach each individual shot. Can you tell us a bit about sort of how you made that transition and what the reasoning was behind switching from being a, a pure coach to a psychologist? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Well, I, I actually started, uh, and my my love and fascination for sports psychology uh, really derives more from playing golf um, as a as a professional golfer. I started out on that journey, wanting to be. Um, wanting to compete, I suppose, alongside Tiger Woods until I uh, realized pretty quickly that, um, number one, I wasn't going to be good enough to compete with Tiger Woods, irrespective of any kind of psychological skill. Um, And also, I didn't really want to live the rest of my life um, eating out of a baked bean tin can. I wanted to make a little bit more money than that. Um, So, I started coaching the game of golf, um, and I would say my my interest and 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 uh, fascination with the psychological side of sport and coaching and skill acquisition broadened as I was coaching golf. Um, and I, at that time, went to university, did my degree in psychology, masters in sports psychology, and really came to as I started supervision to become a fully registered, qualified sports psychologist, I, I came to a bit of a crossroads in terms of, well, do I do this full time or, or, or do I have it on the side uh, alongside the golf coaching? And and that's when I decided to really discard of, of golf, not, not discard a golf, but move on from being a golf coach and 
and become a um, a full-time sports psychologist. That was about oh, 15, I say 15 years ago, but now it's probably about 16 or 17 years ago now. Um, and so I've been uh, uh, been doing that that since. So it was re- there was really always a real interest and fascina- fascination for the psychological side of, of sport, not just golf. And, and, and as you've alluded to there, Edward, you know, golf, I suppose, is regarded as the psychological sport. If you visit Amazon, um, and you type in golf psychology, you are fed back around about a thousand titles. If you put football, or soccer psychology, or basketball psychology, you'll get scant uh, uh, um, uh, returns for your efforts there. Uh, some of my books actually will be on there, so I'm not trying to publicise my work there. But um, yeah, so so <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm just fascinated uh, with psychology of sport in general. Um, and so that that that's been my journey. So that's kind of how I moved into the the general psychology, sports psychology realm from golf. That's really interesting. And actually, I'm glad you just brought up what you just brought up because that was going to be one of my first questions. Was you know you talk about golf being an individual sport and all the sports psychology that people kind of think, but then you said that there's not as much on team sports. And I played both growing up, and I actually felt more uncomfortable. I think in the team sports because there's kind of people are relying on you right and i think everyone thinks individual sports you know they're getting in their head they're getting in their head but people forget i think about team sports and the dynamic within the team what what do you think i mean do you think there's more of an influence in the individual or the team sport what i think frank is that we're instantly best friends because um very rarely do i um do I experience somebody actually saying that? And it, and it is so, so true. And it's it's not to suggest that golf and, and tennis, and obviously tennis is a different sport and is played at a different pace, but it's not to say that individual sports are, aren't psychological. Of course they are. They're out there on your own. You're relying on yourself. If it's going wrong, you're the person who's, you know, it's going wrong with, and, and there's nobody else to to necessarily help you out there although in golf you do have a caddy um but there's a very interesting dynamic that you've really laid bare there frank in terms of um as um look in the world of football for example um you have to be you want to be the best individual you can be and you've got to be a great teammate and so your capacity to communicate your ability to work cohesively with others to to coordinate and cooperate with others is constantly tested and actually it's more of an indictment on where we are in our, 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 you know, in, in the elite level of football, that there's not enough at the moment um, written about leadership and teamship and relationship and stuff like that, because all of those factors are really, really, really important. And they place an onus on the individual player, player to be somebody who has the capability to lead somebody else and influence somebody else. That, that is so, so vital. The final thing to say there is also when people say to me, well, you know, football, how can football or how can basketball be, um, how can they be psychological sports? They work so quick. You know, it takes a, a second to give away the ball. It takes a second to score a basket. It takes a second to score a goal. How can these be psychological? Um, 
we can understand that golf is psychological because there's so much time to think. But in these team invasion sports, there's no time to think. Well, actually, that is a misunderstanding of how the brain is structured and how it functions. The brain and the nervous system work in milliseconds. And when we're competing and even when we're training, we're throwing up thoughts and feelings all the time into our conscious awareness that's uh, that's mediating our capacity to uh, be aware, anticipate, make decisions, execute our physical, execute uh, uh, physically and our our physical functionality is impacted by these thoughts and feelings. So in fact, um, on the pitch, off the pitch, on the field, off the field, these sports are really, really psychological. And every sport has its own, they're, they're, there's relationships between psychology across sports, but every sport by and large has its own specific psychological challenges. So mentioning those individual challenges that you then face, how much does that change then the work that you do with an athlete, say from if we want to take the two sports that we sort of discussed a little bit there, say a footballer that you've worked pretty extensively with mm. and a golfer, how different is your approach then in terms of working with them on improving and handling the pressure and the, and the moments that they put themselves in? Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting. And I'm always about to contradict myself here straight away. Um, because what I would say is you can still use a lot of the same mental skills and mental techniques across these sports. It's probably how you might use them and the subtle nuances and complexity and the style in which you might use them and the, the language you might envelope them in. But I'll give you a working example. I help golfers and footballers and basketball players and I would help a baseball player to have a game face a game face, which is basically your optimal mental state, which we can we can talk about if you'd like. Um, I would also um, help um, golfers and footballers use something I call controllers, that being your self-talk, for example, your capacity to um, engage in self-control. So there's certainly some similarities. But in golf, a lot of the work is done around routines. So, you know, in football, obviously, you might have a pre-match routine. You might have a half-time routine. Hey, you may even have a post-match routine. But out there on the pitch, you're not really going to have any routines. The game is so quick and so fluid, right, that you're you're just playing. But you can stick to your game face. You can use your controllers. You can use your self-talk. But in golf, what you're going to do is we're going to establish a routine. And we're going to work on you being ruthless with your routine. You've got to take charge of yourself over every shot, irrespective of the challenges that you are confronted with, the the, 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 the toughness of the hole, the toughness of the shot that's being presented to you. So there's a subtle difference there between golf, where we're working on routines, and football, where routines aren't really that commonplace apart from probably before the game. So there's some subtle variations there. But ultimately, what I would say is that I tend to different. You speak to different sports psychologists, you're going to get different colloquialisms, you're going to get different words, and different ways of approaching these things. You know, some sports psychologists talk about four C's. When it comes to mental skills, they'll talk about concentration, confidence, control and commitment. For example, I can sometimes use these, but I often talk about attention, intensity, and intent. Because whatever sport you're playing, by and large, you need to pay attention. I don't think anybody would dispute that, right? We don't want to be distracted. We want to pay attention. We want to compete at the right 
intensity level or an optimal intensity level. And that would be the same for football as it would be for golf. We they would have different types of optimal intensity levels, but we want to compete at the right intensity level. We don't want to be too high or too low. We don't want to be a headless chicken. And we don't want to be lethargic or flat or despondent or down. And then that third skill is is intent, a positive intent, playing on the front foot, swinging with confidence for example, executing your actions positively. So attention, intensity, and intent. And then my job is to come in and and teach, if we're talking about performance here, teach players a bunch of techniques that help them become mentally skillful to execute in a high performance mindset with attention, intensity, and intent. That tends to be a blanket thing across all sports. That's how I do it anyway. I think that's really fascinating. And I think there's so many things to unpack within everything you've just said there. And, but it brings up a topic that Frank and I actually discussed on a recent episode. We were actually in the postmasters. We were talking about if you're in a situation where you're leading a golf tournament, mm-hmm. one hole to play mm-hmm. and getting into the concept of, do you want to know the score? Does it affect the way that you then manage that hole? Mm-hmm. And you talked there about the idea of being positive and playing on the front foot. How would you deal with a player? Is, they, is that an area where you would work through situations with an individual? or is it, And how much does that vary from person to person in terms of what advice you might give them as to play the way you normally play or adapt to the situation that you're in? Hey, look, it's, got, it's a really, really great question. And there's a, there's, a, there's a, I suppose the nuance there is, as you said, there's individual differences. You know, we might go back to what one of the most influential sports psychologists, a guy called Dr. Bob Rotella, says in his books. And, and I think in real life, he's probably a little bit more agnostic and individually driven but in his books he talks about don't look at the scoreboard at all and I think he would be the first one to admit well if a player says I've got to look at the scoreboard that's important to me then you know he'd he'd allow that for want of a better term the problem with not looking at a scoreboard is that you can make strategical decisions and this has genuinely happened even in the biggest of tournaments in fact I think I'm going to be very geeky here I'm going to say the 1994 British Open at Turnbury, a Swedish golfer, Jesper Parnovic, bogeyed the last hole to to fail getting into a playoff with Nick Price, the Zimbabwean golfer, and he admitted afterwards that he hit a shot because he hadn't looked at the scoreboard, didn't know his position, and so subsequently made a strategical decision based on not knowing. And that is the problem with not looking at the scoreboard is that, you know, you cannot conflate. And actually, people do this in team invasion sports all the time. They conflate mindset and strategy. They are two different things. So in instance, you know, in basketball or in, in, in football, soccer, you know, we can set ourselves up strategically defensively, but play on the front foot. Uh, mentally, we can engage in approach behavior with positive intent. We can play fearless while setting up strategically defensively. Don't conflate mindset and strategy. So the golfer who says, well, I'm going to choose not to look at the scoreboard. The problem there or the potential problem can be that they're going to make potentially strategic, strategic decisions, not knowing where they are. If they choose to look at the scoreboard, which I would probably suggest would be optimal, I think you've got to develop a a flexibility of mindset to look at the scoreboard and make decisions based on that. Everything still stays the same in terms of I might be more attacking because I'm a shot behind. Now, you've said a scenario of being a shot ahead. Okay, I might start to I might make 
more conservative decisions, I might hit uh, a utility wood off the tee or something like that, or I might aim for the middle of the green rather than at the flag. That's a strategical decision based being on shot ahead, but I'm still going to execute my swing with a positive intent. So I'm still going to execute a swing in a committed way or a confident way or a free way. I'm still going to take charge of myself over every single shot from tee to green, irrespective of being a shot ahead or a shot behind, whatever it is. So the mindset still, I still have to engage in what we call approach behavior. Now, the science underpinning approach behavior is an interesting one. It is actually an English uh, psychologist, one of the most influential psychologists of all time. He passed away about 15 years ago now, a guy called Jeffrey Gray, um, who worked in London for most of his life. And actually, he worked on, he created something called the biological basis of personality. And he essentially discovered two brain regions um, that, have been essentially accepted by modern day neuroscientists as existing. Okay, BIS and BAS, the behavioral approach system and the behavioral inhibition system. I'll say that again, behavioral approach system, behavioral inhibition system. And you can guess from those names what they mean. Okay, so they're evolutionary. It's an evolutionary thing. We, the BIS and BAS approach and inhibition exists to help us survive. We can't, we, we literally wouldn't be human if we didn't have them. We approach threat or we become inhibited by threat. We seek reward, okay, or we move away from, okay, we feel threatened. We're in challenge mode or we're in threat mode, okay. So behavioral inhibition, behavioral approach. For me, golfers have got to state behavioral approach all the way through the game. Every swing, behavioral approach, that is a positive intent. In practical terms, that's a confident swing or a committed swing, or it is um, a free swing. If we're talking about a team invasion sport, it's playing on the front foot, executing actions positively. And that's where my idea of a game face can come in. So just picking a couple of action-based words that resemble the style in which you want to execute actions. For example, I've got a player, a footballer I work with, who would be regarded as one of the best footballers on the planet right now. He's a very famous individual. He has a game face of dominant and relentless, dominant and relentless. And so going into every game, his number one objective is I'm going to be dominant and relentless. I'm going to be dominant and relentless nonstop. Nothing and no one takes me away from dominant and relentless. I get up and down the pitch, dominant and relentless. If my cross goes into rose, dominant and relentless. If I miss a chance to score, dominant and relentless. We go a goal behind, dominant and relentless. If my, play, if, my, if my teammates are playing rubbish, dominant and relentless. The crowd are watching me, they're going to see dominant and relentless. Every action, every motion every movement, every responsibility, I'm going to execute dominant relentless. That works in servitude to approach behavior. That is your optimal mental state. And again, in psychology, approach behavior, it's that, but it's also another theory called individual zone of optimal functioning. So a Norwegian dude in the 1970s, a guy called Yuri Hanin, okay, worked with Russian divers. And he noticed that different divers competed best at different uh, levels of anxiety and with different emotions. Some were cool and calm and competed really well at, say, four out of ten anxiety. Others were upbeat and positive and dived best at what they might categorize as six out of ten anxiety. So he created an individual zone of optimal functioning. Everybody is a little bit different in terms of how they high perform their optimal mental state, emotions and anxiety. So that's that goes hand in hand with approach behavior. 
there's so many mini theories that 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 that, that work towards this game face idea. But this player is dominant, and relentless. So I will help a basketball player, a baseball player, a golfer, a, a footballer have a game face. I think that's so important to know what persona you want, the attitude you want to portray. It's a behavioral blueprint that is so so important. When you're saying there, just to expand on that slightly, the kind of the game face, and it's almost a sort of mantra that you're talking about in some respects there. Is that something that they are actively then saying to themselves throughout a match? Or is it a a sort of mindset, a sort of more complex mindset that you're developing? It's a great question. And I would say to you, they can be utilizing their self-talk. They can be talking to themselves. Absolutely. But potentially even more powerful is something that can be described. Again, I'm going to throw a funky psychological term at you here, embodied cognition embodied cognition i'm a big believer alongside many people these days that our mental processes our cognition our mental processes are embodied okay so how we hold ourselves influences how we feel what we see what we remember what we imagine okay uh, and what we see is a, is a really important element there there's some great research by a cambridge um psychologist called simone schnall this is a really good ted talk that i recommend okay and she's doing stuff here on embodied cognition and embodied perception think about that embodied perception what she discovered is that she put participants in two groups a group of part- both groups looked at a slope in front of them and had to judge the angle of the slope okay the severity of the slope participants who had had an energy drink prior to looking at the slope judged the slope to be less severe than those who hadn't had an energy drink those who were wearing a rucksack in a different experiment with some some weight there judged the slope to be um steeper than those who didn't have the rucksack on how we're feeling whether through an energy drink or through feelings in our body due to having some weight there influences what we see Okay, so if I'm going into a game and I'm thinking, don't mess up. Oh, God, I didn't play very well. I've had a poor training week, etc. And I'm having these mental, these thoughts, mental processes, cognitions. I embody those. I embody those. I be them and do them and I act them. And that's why I want this footballer to be, do and act. Be, do and act. Embody, enact. Embody, enact. Dominant, relentless, dominant, relentless. So my very long answer to your very easy questions or simple question is, yes, we can tell ourselves it, but we got to, for me, be it and do it and act it. And that's why every single day in training and practice sessions, I want I want footballers and other sports people to practice embodying, being, doing and acting their game face as an example. That's an imperative thing to do. They've got to generate a model of who they want to be in their world and enact that model. They've got to generate it and enact it. That's really interesting. And then, so we um, had a Olympic wrestler on uh, a long time ago and he was very big into um, I, I can't remember exactly what he would call it, but he had these kind of routines he would go through right before he stepped on the match to kind of to clear his head and to put himself, I think, into that, you know, into that mental, that optimal mental state. Now, is that something you also suggest, you know, in terms of 
kind of getting rid of those emotions that are affecting you from outside your life or your energy drink or whatever it is that, you know, right before you step onto that pitch, you have some sort of routine that pulls everything away and just focuses you into your your task at hand to get into that mental state, that game phase? Absolutely. I mean, again, if we're going to go back to skills, we're talking about attention and feeling state, being attentive to attention. Um, You know, if if there's a superpower that you want sports people to develop, it's the capacity to flex attention. And so routines in many respects need to be designed and tailored towards them flexing their attention onto, as you've quite rightly said there, Frank, the task at hand. I talk to sports competitors about having ants, automatic negative thoughts, ANTS, automatic negative thoughts. We need to suffocate the ants by directing our attention onto our tasks, on, onto specific controllable positive tasks tangible tasks that we can accomplish that is imperative and the ideal scenario is we've also got some techniques in our or tools in our toolbox that also influence that we can use in our routine to positively influence our feeling state game face is very robust because it does both it helps us flex our attention away from ants, suffocating those, giving oxygen to our tasks and the style in which we want to execute our tasks. It increases feelings, the kind of feelings that we want for our performance, whether they're cool and calm feelings or positive, upbeat, sharp, alert, alive, lively, dominant, relentless feelings, whatever they might be for that specific individual. So in summary, it's being attentive to attention, And it's engaging in the kind of feeling states that's going to enable me to execute at an optimal intensity and with positive intent. Again, we come back to attention, intensity, intent. If I can get those right, I'm in my high performance mindset. I give myself my best chance to execute technically, tactically, physically. There's the integration piece uh, from the mental side of the game into the tech tech and physical pieces. I'd like to touch on a topic that you kind of alluded to right at the beginning. You talked about leadership and, and sort of working with individuals then on the leadership skills that they might need. I guess what a lot of people might think of oftentimes as sort of soft skills in a sense. And I think there's tendencies, certainly within team sports, to put people in leadership positions. And I guess this even extends into the corporate world as well, but put people in leadership positions who are high performers, yeah. sort of not necessarily a skill it's not that they've shown any particular leadership qualities. It's that this is our best player, so it makes sense to have him as the team captain. And obviously in certain sports, that can be a, a significant position. In sense, in recent news, we've seen this a little bit perhaps with Ben Stokes, mm-hmm. where you have the England cricket team in this situation of selecting a leader and, and almost by default having to pick a player that they think is at least guaranteed to make the team, not necessarily who they, you would choose under normal circumstances for proof. How do you work with that? You know, what kind of recommendations do you then give to teams when you're working to them in terms of how you select the best possible leader? And then once someone does have a leadership position, how are you working with them to improve the communication between between them and say other players and, and the way they can inspire and lead? It's a really good question. And, 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 and you know, you hit upon some really important points. I, again, I, I, there, there can be, and I don't want to, point the fingers here but there can be a lack of sophistication around leadership and teamship and relationship the, the three ships as i call them leadership teamship and, and relationship and um 
I, 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 or what I can certainly say is in, in English football, there's so many, if I may say, coaches and maybe managers who kind of bemoan generation, millennial generation and generation Z when it comes to generation Z, um, when it comes to leadership um, uh, or a, a lack of capacity or capability around leadership. And they maybe have this blind spot because they don't think, well, every single day we have an opportunity to develop leadership. We have an opportunity to develop leadership on the grass, on the pitch, on the court. We have an opportunity in every activity, in every single session. You know, those are the times that, you know, you can develop leadership in a classroom. Of course you can. You can develop leadership with a one-to-one conversation sitting on a sofa. Of course you can. But if we want great leaders on the on the grass, on the court, you know, on the pitch, on the field, then actually doing it in the embodying leadership, giving players the opportunity to enact leadership, um, for me, that needs to be embedded in the, the playing environment. And so that's something that when I've been engaged at clubs, I'm constantly talking with coaches about, okay, we're doing an activity here. We're going to talk in football terms here. We're doing a rondo or a keep ball or a small-sided game. You're doing a small-sided game or a keep ball because, you know, you're working technically ta- te- technically and physically, probably not tactically so much, but technically and physically. Maybe you're, you're doing a, a portion of a game model here. But are you developing biopsychosocial skills? Are you developing psychosocial skills? Are you, can we develop leadership? What are we going to do here to develop leadership and teamship and relationship? You can actually have the leaders of your team if such a thing exists. You can task them to lead others during those activities. You can have team huddles. You can empower leaders to stop play and instruct in that moment you can empower leaders to stop play and form a huddle in that moment because they want to you want them to you want to give them the opportunity to get their own coaching points across and i suppose it's remiss of me not to say look there's lots of leadership models out there of course there is i just love if we simplify leadership in sport i think you can lead by action you can lead by instruction. You can lead by energy. And I'm sure there's lots of it. Maybe somebody might say you can lead by personality. Or so you said you can lead through your high performance, although I'd say that's action. And that exists and that's fine. That's okay. But as you've mentioned there, Edward, it's no good having somebody who's the best player on the team or the perceived best player on the team. They lead by their action, but they have very few other leadership skills. And actually, it can often be to the detriment of their their ability because they've now got to focus on these other areas. So I think I think for coaches to have good conversation, just one-to-one conversations around, are you a leader by action? Are you a leader by instruction? Or are you a leader by energy? Not everybody's going to be a leader by instruction because not everybody has great schematics of the game in their mind and the capacity to instruct to see what's going on in the moment while they're competing and to instruct in that moment. Not everybody is going to be a leader via energy, whether it's because from an introversion, extroversion dimension scenario, or whether it's just that they have to keep themselves to themselves to be able to ready themselves to perform and then go and perform. 
and not everybody's going to be a leader by action because you know they might not have that kind of game so i think everybody's going to be a little bit different and some might have a, a combination of different things but i think it's then giving each pl- uh, the leaders no matter whether it's action or information or energy the opportunity to practice those things to develop those things so it might be player a is a leader through instruction will give player the opportunity player a the opportunity to actually stop the game to instruct task them to be voluble in training task them to to, to do that to practice that um get their thoughts and ideas on, on on the game perhaps the leader via energy you know might be the one in the huddle doing that and so on and so forth so it's really just giving leaders that opportunity to lead and to <clears throat> practice leadership um, I, I, I just think that that can be done with greater thought, um, certainly in the environments I've been in anyway. I think that makes sense. And again, I think that's something that even a, a lot of people listening might be able to relate to in any work environment, in any dynamic. The same, the same, sort of some, of the, some of the same principles can be applied. You sort of touched on there the element of the concept of skills that you can develop and maybe skills that are more inherent and, you know, just you're born with them. And I think a lot of times when people think of some of the psychological aspects of sporting performance, they probably think of them as just being, you either have it or you don't. (laughs) You're either clutch or you're not. You like the pressure or you don't. And I think either as an individual performing within the sport, I've certainly been on teams where I think people have accepted that I might not be the person you want in the, you know, I don't want to step up and take the penalty or I don't want to be the last person at bat in the baseball game. It's just not for me. And then as a sports fan, you also have that same idea of, well, this is, we definitely don't want to trust this person. How difficult is it for you sometimes when you're working with people to have them sort of do away with those, that concept that they are, they either are or they aren't with certain elements And, and how are there parts of someone's personality where you might think, look, this actually can't necessarily be solved. So we have to sort of manage it and mitigate the impact that that has on everything else. Yeah. And, and, and it makes me think of, I worked with a golfer um, a couple of years ago, a very good golfer, you know, played <laughs> to a very good level and came to me um, for a first session and virtually one of the first words, a few sentences out of his mouth was, I just can't do this stuff. You know, it was almost like he was challenging, he was challenging me to, to he was kind of saying, there's no way you're going to get me. I, I'm paying you for this, but there's no way you're going to be able to help me here. And it's it's it. There is this element of a, a belief about your belief in your ability to change. Uh, a perception. It comes really under the rubric, I suppose, of of perception of control, which actually was first written about in 1966. Um, great year because England won the World Cup, the last time they won anything in football, um, and it was a great year because a psychologist called Julian Rotter great name, Julian Rotter, um, started to theorize his idea of perception of control. I have the capacity to take charge of myself, to engage in self-control, to influence myself internally, which subsequently um, will impact my capacity uh, to mediate the outcomes that I have, that I experience. 
to really under perception of control. And if you don't, if you don't feel like you have, you can take charge of yourself, you can take control of yourself, your, your nervous system, you know, your feelings, your emotions, your thoughts, then that can be a real challenge. Now there's, I, I don't know if I'm going to go down a rabbit hole and not answer your question here, but I'll, I'll come back to it because I think it's really important to say that actually something I tweet about and message about on all kinds of social media platforms is this, is, is the idea that actually what we, I, w- I would argue very largely accept as psychologists now by and large is that we can't actually control our thoughts, feelings, and emotions. We can't control inner impulses. They happen to us, but we can choose how we respond to those. We can choose how we direct our attention with skills, with techniques to become flexible, skillful at directing our attention away from the thoughts, feelings, and emotions that we're experiencing so that we can, our human functioning isn't impacted too too much by those thoughts, feelings, and emotions. The challenge here is helping people to understand that, to recognize that, to, uh, again, I'm going to throw you another funky term here, cognitive diffusion, to diffuse the thoughts, feelings, and emotions that people are experiencing, to zoom out from them, to simply observe them in order to make sure that we're not overly and negatively impacted by them, and we can uh, still behave in the manner that we want to. So by behavior, that might be staying calm, executing my stroke, executing that penalty, irrespective of the feelings that I might be experiencing underneath. So I I, I suppose what I would say to you is it's it's not so much that (laughs) there are people that come to you or there's people that you find in teams that cannot um, engage in self-control it's that their perception of control or or, or if, if they have the uh, a perception that they can't control or engage in self-control then it becomes very challenging to help them not impossible but very very challenging and you've got to change that first and then again with them as well, and maybe with others, the capacity to help people diffuse, to zoom away from their thoughts, feelings, and emotions, to observe them, and still be able to engage in the behaviors that you want them to engage in, and they want to engage in, and not be disturbed by the thoughts, feelings, and emotions that they're having. Some people find that easier than others. Some people get the idea of zooming out, observing. So, so there are definitely individual difference, differences there. And that's also seen, you know, uh, I think scientifically through personality science. Some people are just more, they, there's five main traits that personality science demonstrates that we engage with as human beings and we engage in our world in hum, hum, as human beings. One of those is openness to experience and openness to experience in, in includes our emotional intelligence essentially and what so what personality science would say is some people just aren't that engaged in their inner self like they're not that self-aware when it comes to the thoughts feelings and emotions that they're experiencing and how they're influencing their behavior and so to be able to help them become more aware 
of themselves, their thoughts, feelings, emotions, behaviors, um, and how they're impacting their life can be very, very challenging. So it, it can become a very complex scenario depending on belief and, you know, around perception of control. The capacity to diffuse, to come away from thoughts, feelings, and emotions, and just the fact that coming back to your main point of biologically, some people just lack that capacity to be aware of themselves. I, that is a my understanding is that is an actual phenomenon um, captured through personality science. I hope that kind of answered your question. It's quite a complex landscape. No, I mean, it does answer the question. I know whenever, you know, it's always difficult to put someone on the spot who has a great deal of expertise and then say in, you know, three and a half minutes, can you, you know, summarize a, a particular a Yes, thanks, thanks for that one. So I, I want to go back to the, the game phase and how do you, how does an athlete decide what their game phase is? I guess the first question. And the second question is how often does that game phase change? So you said that the one football you work with, his is relentless and dominant. Is that all year, all the time for the last five years, or does it shift from game to game, from year to year? You know, how, how do you figure out what, what you want your game phase to be and how long is it your game phase? Um, I found over the years of doing this that game faces don't change. Um, they're quite static. I have another technique that I won't detail today, but I'll task those listening in who are interested and would like to be invested in this there's a technique called a match script um that would change from game to game depending on the challenge you've got the game mod the game model that your coach is using you know the conversations you're having with your coach the responsibilities in your role if we're talking about team invasion sports here so uh, something like that would change from week to week but by and large a game face is pretty much it's not set in stone i have had players who change their game faces but by and large the, the action-based words that they pick tend to stick around. In terms of how they develop their game face, if they're working with me, we co-create that. My job is to ask the right questions. The guidelines I can give anybody listening in would be the three most, in, most important tools I have in my toolbox as a psychologist, possibly. And certainly the three important tools for a game face are memory, imagination, and perception. Memory, tell me about you at your best. Remember you at your best. Talk to me about that. Tell me about that. I'm not one for necessarily quoting Anthony Robbins, but he did say something really cool, and that's that success leaves clues. And I think that is a real truism. And so reaching out mentally to your past and recalling you at your best, there's clues there. There's clues in them, their images, right, in your head and actions and feelings through your body. So borrowing from that. Imagination is the opposite. Think about your dream game. Best game, dream game. Best game, dream game. What would it look like on Saturday? You go out and you play and you compete and you play your dream game. 10 out of 10 game, an 11 out of 10 game. We can have some fun there. That's imagination. You've got memory, imagination. So when I sat down with that footballer, as an example, when I sit down with all footballers, by and large, especially if I'm working on something to do with performance, we're talking game face. And so I'm asking them to recall 
best games. I'm asking them to imagine dream games. We can also use perception as well. Who do you want to be out there? You went, If you go and compete, you were going and competing right now. You were walking out there onto the pitch, onto the field. Who would you want to be? How would you want to go about your business? All the actions, all the responsibilities that you're executing, how would you want to go about those? What behavior, in what behavioral style would you want to execute your actions? And so what I'm trying to do through memory, imagination, and perception is draw out of the player some action-based words. They've got to be action-based. That's the key here. They've got to be action-based. And I might also draw out of them a model player or maybe something a bit funkier like an animal. So, for example, I work with, again, another fairly prominent player who has a game face of confident, relentless lion, confident, relentless lion. Confident, relentless line because he wants to show himself confidently at all times. Confident body language. He wants to hold himself that way. He wants to run and move that way. He wants to be relentlessly attacking the six-yard area, relentlessly trying to find pockets of space, relentlessly trying to lose the defenders. A lion, because when I suggested an animal to him, he said, Dan, I've got to be a lion in the penalty area. That's my penalty. That's my penalty area. I'm the king of that penalty area. Pictorial metaphors it's a pictorial metaphor that we want a player to embody and enact now that line i did that animal might sound a bit strange to people but we work very well through metaphors and this points to the work of one of the world's greatest cognitive linguists somebody called george lakoff who got together with a philosopher mark uh, thompson and in the early 80s 1981 actually wrote a book metaphors we live by and i'm going to make up a percentage here on the spot but it was roughly this they said something like roughly 70 75 percent of sentences contain metaphors and so our brains fire when um we have certain brain pathways that fire when we think of a lion when i think of a lion in that penalty area my brain is firing in terms of the behaviors that i might enact when I'm considering being a confident, relentless lion, confident, relentless lion. Then we've got a model player. So I've got a player who I've worked with for a number of years, actually, who I can mention because I spoke about him in Soccer Tough 2, my my follow-up to Soccer Tough, funnily enough, Soccer Tough 2, inventively called. And it's a player called Yannick Balassi, a former Crystal Palace Everton winger, had a horrible ACL when playing for Everton and really became... A real challenge for him to get back to full fitness. He's now playing in Turkey and still playing at a very, very high level. Um, but he has always been brave, lively, relentless Ronaldo. Brave, lively, relentless Ronaldo. Whenever he goes out there, brave, like, be it, do it, act it. So with all these players, coming back to your question, with all these players, when I sit down with them, memory, imagination, perception, memory, imagination, perception, I'm extracting from them action-based words, model players, a concept like an animal, something like that, to create a pictorial metaphor that they can embody and enact. They can embody and enact. That's that's the kind of the formulation there. And those ones that they pick tend to stick around. And I tend to reinforce them over that long stretch of time. So Yannick, it's been five years of brave, lively, relentless Renato. Brave, lively, relentless. The challenge is being able to do it out there under the gun, under pressure. So, yeah, that, that's how you'd formulate it. It makes a lot of sense to me. I, I do some work with um, 
tech startups on, on developing their brand image. And I've actually found that uh, working with them in metaphors, it's a lot easier. If you ask them, what do you want your brand to represent? They'll struggle and they'll often fall back on sort of very stereotypical, bland messaging. But if instead we start working through sort of uh, which fictional character do you think your brand has sort of some relation to or which uh, superhero? And then from there afterwards, kind of reverse engineer it and say, well, what are the elements of that that you then embody what you want your brand to be? We're actually able to get to the sort of idea much a lot faster. So I can kind of relate to the idea of working through metaphors as being a, a good way to sometimes achieve things. I know we don't want to keep you forever. So certainly, I, and I'll, get, I'll give Frank the honor of the, the final question. I have one last question for you. Um, I mean, I could have a million more and it'd be great to have you back on in the future to, to discuss some more specific areas with you, but maybe from a more amateur athlete perspective, and let's even take golf to really boil it down to like, a, again, a, you, you spoke about yourself. It's a, it's a one area where people are going to really search for tips. Every person I play, I would say 90% of people I play golf with at any one moment in time, all very much amateurs really struggle with the mental side of the game and to put a bad shot out of their, their mind after they've done it, or as their round starts to fall apart, you can just, you can watch people unravel very, very clearly. Where do you think the average person, the average athlete is going wrong in terms of their mental approach to sports? And what tips would you give them? Some of which you may have already mentioned, but that you think a person could do very easily to improve their mental state over the course of, say, a golf round. I would reinforce what we've spoken about. I would reinforce something like a game face, because whether it's golf, whether it's football, I help golfers out. So I have a golfer who is plays on tour and strives to be DJ Strutt, as in Dustin Johnson Strutt, out there, no matter what. So even at that level, an England golfer who qualified for the 2015 Open Championship um, had a created a game face of Macca Bounce, Macca Bounce, as in Rory McIlroy, because he bounces around with Macca Bounce. So these things, and I know I've gone directly to the elite level again, So, but you can, anybody can use these to just be able to, even if you just get a little bit better at squashing those ants, automatic negative thoughts, even if you just get a little bit better, that's something. But connected to that, if you can use these techniques as an example, and create your mental framework that you'd like to have. So, for instance, I've got a game face and I want to squash my ants. And I want to have a, a routine that helps me take charge of myself into the ball. And I'm going to make sure I execute a committed swing, as an example. There's a neat little mental framework. It's not the best. It's not the, the most powerful. But that's something. My argument would be put that first. Put that first. Turn down the volume, and it, I'm not suggesting for one second that what I'm saying here is easy to do. It's simple to talk about. It's not easy to do. We are so socialized in all sports into want to win, want to win, want to win, got to win, got to win, got to win, want to play my A game if we're talking about golf, or want to be 9 out of 10 if we're talking about playing football or basketball or something like that. Want to play A, want to play A, want to play, want to hit A shots, want to hit my best shot. What we're not socialized into is I want to have my best possible game. I want to get the most from my C game. Or I want to turn, if I'm playing football, a 5 out of 10 into a 6 out of 10 game. 
a six out of 10 into a seven out of 10 game. How do I do both of those? I've got to stick to my mental framework. I've got to stick to my game face. I've got to squash my ants. I've got to execute committed swings. That's my number one indice of success. If I do that, I've done my job. And look, if you're an amateur player, again, I understand you're going out there, you've got one or two rounds a week at best. You know, I know you want to go and play well. But if you do, if you are invested in getting better and thus you decide, okay, I'm invested, therefore, in having a better mental game, create your mental framework. Doesn't matter if you read my books or Bob Rotella's books. It does matter, actually, read mine. But, you know, go out and read some books and get some tools. Tool yourself up. That's so important. You know, working with young players, very young players. I say very young. I'm not talking about six years old or anything like that. You know, 14, 15, 16. I once listened to, 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 to something somebody said. He said, look, we're equipping young people. And this is probably in general life. We're equipping young people in life. Life is about, let's say, climbing Everest. I don't want to be too, you know, dramatic about it. But it's like climbing Everest life, right? And we're giving them, you know, this flimsy coat to climb Everest in, in terms of mental skills, the capacity to 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 deal with adversity, and so they they find it difficult to get past base camp, you know, and that's why we're engulfed in so much, arguably engulfed in so much emotion, and so. We need to tool ourselves up. I want to tool up 14, 15, 16, 17. When I say tool up, I'm obviously talking about mental skills here. Nothing nothing to sort of like weapons or anything like that. But, I'm, you know, we want mental skills. We want mental techniques. We want mental tools. And we're not doing that for our, in my opinion, not doing that well enough for our young people, whether in sport or outside of sport. And so even I would say to an amateur golfer, who is passionate about golf, you know, they spend, you spend money, you buy a tailor-made club, a Callaway club, you spend, you spend a lot of money in clubs, you spend your money on playing the game. You want to play well. Yeah, you're playing with your mates and you're having fun, but you, you want to play. So tool yourself up. Have a framework with tools that you can execute that get, helps improve your capacity to retain attention, intensity, and intent, the right intensity, and the right positive intent. Tool yourself up and then put that first. Be bold enough and brave enough to say, you know what, I might play my C game out there because I've got 400 bones in my body and it's challenging to be able to manage, you know, to coordinate my muscles perfectly all the time. So you know what, if I'm on my C game, I accept that, but I'm going to stick to my game face, execute my routine, have committed swings. That's my job out there. Same in football. So that that's what I would I would say to that. But it does require an amateur to say, I'm going to do something slightly different here. I'm going to do something slightly different. I'm going to do that. And I'm not going to judge my C shots and my D shots and my C game or my five out of 10 football game so harshly. I'm going to manage myself through those games to optimize my performance. That's some really great answers. And, and you actually covered two or three of the questions that I was going to ask, which is great because I, one of the things that I, you know I, I always wonder is some sometimes it just doesn't go your way, right? And I think this is exactly what you're saying is is that you just have to 
optimize those days when it's not going your way and still perform at the peak for whatever that is, whether, you know, there's something with your physical body, something in the environment that's affecting your, your swing, whatever, but that that's great. So I think then the question I, I kind of want to end on too, um, I was going to ask also about the, um, at a younger age, um, kind of kids getting into it now. And you, you address that really nicely. And I think what's great about that is you're starting to see athletes who are still very young athletes saying that they, you know, we're going to sports psychologists when they're much younger and, and that it's not, it's, it's not a negative thing. It's actually a positive thing because it's helped them not, you know, not as a sign of weakness, but as a sign of strength. And I think that's great that, that athletes are open, open about that. And I guess that brings me to my question is lately, um, let's say, I guess the past year, you've had two very high profile athletes in Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka, who, who have come out and said that they've had some some mental health issues and they had to step away from the game. And now I don't want you to say whether that was right or wrong, but in your opinion, do you think that you should kind of step away and kind of refresh and regenerate, like regenerate, or do you think it's best to kind of, like you're saying, play through those days where you're not at your best to kind of develop that that mental strength more on those days when you're not at your best so that when you are at your best it's it's more it's better if we're talking about simone biles she is part of um a team um she's picked by the u.s olympic committee um she's part of u.s gymnastics it is imperative that u.s gymnastics the u.s olympics and all sports where um, players are picked, uh, players are part of a program, it is imperative that organizations, governing bodies, provide these athletes with as healthy and as safe an environment as, as, as possible, as healthy and as safe an environment as possible that is psychologically informed, psychologically informed environments, uh, meaning that as coaches, as key decision makers, we take into account the thoughts, feelings, emotions, experiences, personalities of the people in our uh, environment, as that's the athletes, um, that we are probably trying to create as psychologically safe an environment as possible, normalizing vulnerability, recognizing that irrespective of the skill in our feet or hands, the strength in our body, the coordinative abilities that we are normalizing vulnerability, that, that these people still experience ants, if you like, automatic negative thoughts. I think that, so, and so for Simone Biles, from a young age, she should have maybe she did i don't know have had that kind of environment around her coaching practice that is elite coaching practice that understands how to stretch and how to support how to stretch through relevant challenging activities with support there for her and not stretch through bullying or any kind of verbal antagonism, that's imperative as well. Um, 
and part of that environment she needed to have been exposed to and perhaps she was needed to be exposed to protocols processes within the coaching practice within the coaching environment that helped her if not thrive and flourish from a well-being perspective acknowledged any indices of ill mental health that an environment and a coaching practice that's robust enough to notice anything that suggests ill mental health that's what she should have had i don't know what she had if she'd had that or she didn't have that either way in my opinion she needs to be in charge of herself she knows herself and in that environment she needs to be given the space to step away if she feels she needs to especially sports like gymnastics where you can suffer from the twisties um, which is that gymnastic form of yips if you like and that can be very dangerous um so she should be in an environment that enables her to be the best judge of herself. So I think all that is important. Naomi Osaka is more challenging potentially. I don't know the system she grew up in. I don't know if she grew up at IM, the IMG Academy or anything like that. If she was part of an academy, perhaps she was. But again, if so, that academy or any organization that is responsible for her needs to give her the opportunity to have a healthy and safe environment with healthy and safe coaching and great coaching practices and protocols. When she's out on the tour and she's essentially in charge of her own team and in charge of herself, you hope that she's been tooled up to be able to look after herself in the best possible way. And absolutely, she needs to make the decision. She needs to make the decision to step back from a tournament or step back. I think the governing bodies of tennis or any other sport like that need to give these athletes the opportunity to step away from any kind of press protocols um, if required. Absolutely. I, I, I think that that is really, really important. Everybody deserves to have a healthy and safe environment to work in, to play in. Um, we don't live in a perfect world and that doesn't happen a lot outside of sport perhaps, but, and it doesn't happen enough inside of sport. So I think we're getting better at these. Um, I think that this, yeah, I think governing bodies are going to get better at that. I think there is nuance. I don't think I'm, I'm a little bit concerned right now, mental health and well-being, that there's a lot of, there's a lot of great messages out there, but there's a, a lot of talk about it. And that talk can become a bit irresponsible and a little bit too basic and simplistic. Whereas these things can be quite complex and we just need to be careful about it. And it, if I may say, it's possible that you're maybe hearing from, let's say, a lot of footballers here in England who will say, I suffer from depression or I had this depression here or I was depressed there without actually understanding what clinical depression is, the severity of that, um, without understanding uh, low mood, um, uh, without understanding perhaps that mental ill health landscape well enough. 
And we've got to continue to have a more informed language around that, an idea of what that looks like and, and help these organizations to help people understand what they're experiencing. Is this depression? Is this low mood? What, what is this that I'm experiencing here? Is, is ill mental health different to ill well-being or ill-being? You know, th these can get quite complex and we need to be a little bit careful here. And the last thing to say here as well is I actually think that if I may say so, that some of these experiences that some athletes are having and reporting, let's say, low mood, or mild, a mild period of depression. Some of it comes from their relationship with performance and how they perceive that necessity to perform rather than having a much more robust and flexible and sophisticated approach to performance, the kind that we've been talking about. It's okay if I don't have my best game. I just want to have my best possible game. It's not the end of the world. We're so socialized into catastrophic language, all or nothing thinking, black and white thinking in sports, especially elite sport. And I think we need to be, we need to help footballers and athletes have a slightly more sophisticated uh, language and approach to their performances and relationship with their performance. Um, and I think that that will make a difference as well. So a kind of a, a long, twisty answer there. But um, yes, Simone Biles, um, uh, the tennis player whose name I've forgotten briefly because I'm thinking so much. Naomi Osaka. Um, Naomi Osaka, thank you. Absolutely. They, if they want to, they're their own boss. They are their own people. Um, but it is absolutely imperative that we tool them up and we give them the best, healthiest and safest possible environments that they deserve, like we all deserve in anything that we do in, you know, in, in our lives. It's the corporate environment as well. Um, ab absolutely. Last thing to say, it, it's just, you know, mental toughness is, is um, far, far more nuanced um, and, and than, than perhaps historically we've given it credit for and it, it, you know the the capacity to give players space vulnerability to normalize negative thoughts feelings and emotions that's just so so important in these environments in my opinion in my opinion so i hope that kind of waffly answer uh, vaguely answers your question there I thought it was a good answer. And in a sense, you almost touched on it. I don't want to, because we could keep you forever and it would be great to have you back on because it did something sure. I did want to address with you is kind of how players deal. If you if you notice any stigma in a sense when it comes to either from an individual perspective or an organizational standpoint of the, and I guess you, you referred to it perhaps when you talked about more old school managers or coaches thinking about millennials or Generation Z sort of being a bit more soft perhaps. Um, but anyway, we, we can have you back on in the future and have give that topic the, the, the time and, and focus that it probably deserves. But Dan, thank you so much for taking this time to speak with us. Before you go, I guess if you could just plug, you've already mentioned a couple of the books that you've written, but also where people can find you and how they can interact with you. Sure. Um, so I can be found on danabrahams.com. 
danabrahams.com. <coughs> I am on uh, numerous social media platforms. Uh, the main one would, I suppose, be Twitter at danabraham77. I've got another two Twitter um, channels, but the main one is at danabrahams77. Um, uh, I write every day on LinkedIn. I write a post uh, and I write and I put that on Facebook as well, which is so find me Daniel Abrahams on LinkedIn at Dan Abrahams soccer on Facebook at Dan Abrahams sport on Instagram. And I suppose the final one to say is I have my uh, own podcast, which is if it's half as good as yours, guys, then I'd be delighted. But that's going very well. It's the most downloaded. I believe it's the most downloaded uh, pure sports psychology um, uh, podcast. Um, And it is um, it's called The Sports Psych Show. Um, where I interview a bunch of academics, people who are far more intelligent than me, talk about all things sport psychology. So, um, yeah, uh, I think that's um, that's me. That's great, and I, I mean, yeah, definitely great. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, and if, you, if you've enjoyed listening to this episode, then I guess you know where you can get similar style of content for the future. But then, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Right.